0: i Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Neither W.C. Fields, Al Capone, nor Mark Twain were fans of Prohibition. Indeed, Twain warned, Prohibition only drives drunkenness behind doors and into dark places. Capone sneered, Prohibition has made nothing but trouble which is why this era in American history is such a rich canvas for a writer like Jeanette Walls. Her new novel follows Sally Kincaid as she roars over the mountain passes of rural Virginia in a lizzie, delivering moonshine to thirsty customers. But Sally will need every ounce of the metal and ingenuity she's developed from an unorthodox childhood as the daughter of Claiborne County, Virginia's big boss man. Jeanette Walls is the author of The Glass Castle and Silver Star. Her new novel is titled Hang the Moon, and she joins us from Virginia. Jeanette, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: Your bibliography, the books that you read to research Prohibition, is really interesting. I looked up a lot of the books that were on that list, and you were researching the personalities and the policies and what everyday life meant for people in rural America during Prohibition. I'd just love to hear what what stands out, what you learned that was unexpected about that time.
1: Well, you know, Carrie, one of the things that fascinates
0: me about Prohibition
1: is that it, especially in my neck of the woods, rural Virginia, you know, whiskey making had been long a tradition and what prohibition did is it, it turned this money-making operation that for many was the only cash crop they had into something illegal. So it just completely turned everything upside down and turned law-abiding folk into outlaws. And um in... In going back a 100 years ago, one of the things that I was so cognizant of is that I wanted to make sure that whatever I wrote would be believable, that I captured this period in time that was just uh, – it was a period of upheaval. It wasn't just prohibition, but America was changing so dramatically with immigrants and women getting rights and uh, African-Americans – fighting for their rights, it was a time of change. And Prohibition really was pushback against that change. It was this idea that we could bring America back to a simpler, better time. And um, in researching, you know, there was this county in Virginia, Franklin County, that produced more alcohol than any comparable space in America. It was Franklin County, the (laughs) wettest county in the world. And the fiercest (laughs) most, um, the fastest uh, liquor Driver in all the county was a woman, (laughs) Willie Carter Sharps. So Sally Kincaid is not based on her, but there were many women deeply involved in this business that have not gotten a lot of attention. And I, I, I wanted to kind of represent them without being over the top. But, um, you know, these women, they, they were, they were just out to make a living. The men as well. These people would have starved to death. And I think that, you know, prohibition has great it produced some great icons with you know Al Capone and the G Man, but we hillbillies all we got is the you know we've got um, Snuffy Smith from Hooten Holler. We got these hillbillies <laughs> with their corn cob pipes and the moonshine jugs, and it's it's a lot more complicated than that. So I was just trying to get into the complexity and the contradictions of this world.
0: You know, I don't want to miss what you what you said, Jeanette about the upheaval, the tumultuousness of this time, because there are so many echoes from prohibition to contemporary politics. I mean, the way the country was changing. I I think one of the books that that you read was Edward Bears and uh, about the 13 years that changed America. And he is saying that prohibition is really about this old guard, white class of Americans who felt increasingly threatened by immigrants, right? Who came in and they were beer swilling and wine drinking, and this is a class issue, right, as much as an economic.
1: Yes, it was absolutely the, the the crazy Italians with their wine and the crazy Irish with their beer. Let's bring America back to this high, this higher minded place it used to be. And there was a lot of talk about family. If we can cl- close the saloons. Get the dads back taking care of their family the way it's supposed to be. Crime will be a thing of the past and uh, we can close the jails. Some people were very well intended. They really believed that prohibition was going to save America. But yes, it was. It was a largely a nativist movement and a pro-family movement. And it was, um, it, it was a class thing. And going back and reading some of the editorials and the speeches of the period, it was, it was kind of unnerving because the, the arguments against liquor are very strong, but underlying everything was this current of, of, as you said, classism and this upper white class Protestantism. In fact, the Ku Klux Klan was very deeply involved with prohibition, as were, hmm. were many women's movements. So it was this weird coalition. And, um, it, it 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 was an ideology as much as as against liquor. It was just the purity and the sanctity of the white American family.
0: So interesting what you've said about the women's movement. I, I understand that there were women's organizations who saw alcohol as as something that broke up families, right, and stunted children's yes. childhoods, and so this was a movement to to improve the life of, of women. And yet the consequence, as you've said, the underlying nativism, the racism that drove this is something that today women's movements would be app- appalled at, I would think. So, so tell me yeah. what you learned about how that coexisted.
1: Well, it was, it, it's really the law of unintended consequences. And so often people who are out thinking <laughs> that they're protecting a group are actually doing the opposite, whether they intend to or not. And yet it was very startling and very unnerving. You know, one of the, I, I I've come to believe that the, the great cure for, um, nostalgia is research because I thought I'd mm-hmm. kind of fall in love with the 1920s with all the jazz and the Fitzgerald mm-hmm. and everything. But in fact, it was a very dark period filled with fear of, of these immigrants that were coming over and women getting rights. So the, the women's movement was very bifurcated at this point. You know, there, it was as the women's, they got the right to vote, but there was a pushback, especially in places like Virginia where ladylike behavior was so, widely, um, honored. Um, what, what was women's role in this world? You know, the men had just come back from the first world war and women had taken many of their jobs while they were gone. And it was seen as patriotic for women to return to womanhood and motherhood. So that role was very much glorified. But on the other hand, automobiles, I I think it's hard to understand how much they change the world, uh, how much they change people's lives, especially for women. Uh, people living in, in, the countryside, it had taken an entire day to get into the city. In fact, there was a line from an ad that I stole because I just loved it so much. 10 miles used to be a long way. It was a car advertisement. They were, it, it was aimed at women because the car advertisers realized how much women loved automobiles. And that's one of the reasons it's so <laughs> central. The automobile mm-hmm. is so central to hang the moon. The mobility of being able to get in a car, mm-hmm. not needing a man to hitch up the wagon. You know, women, uh, uh, certainly ladies couldn't hop On the horse and go to town. They needed the wagon, and that was only the upper class that had the good carriages. So the automobile was so dramatically changing people's lives, and also things like the washing machine. It's so hard to understand what a chore washing was, and these this technology was changing the roles of women. So where do women fit? Are are they the the um, are they just the, the to stay at home to run the household? Or do they go into the workforce and beyond? And it was just so fascinating reading these newspapers making fun of women sharpshooters and women smoking cigars and women wearing men's pants off in Paris. They they were a source of ridicule, and women were really wrestling with where do we belong
0: in this world? In this world now, Jeanette, I really love what you said about research being the cure for nostalgia. Because, I mean as i as i think what really kind of undergirds your novel is this idea that again and again america returns to this idea this concept idealism i guess that the the days before um yesterday yesteryear were so much better than the times that we're living in now. I mean, we're in this period again where we're looking back and hearing slogans like, right, make America great again. It, tell me how research really explodes that mythology. <laughs>
1: You know, I think I I love history, and it breaks my heart that so often it's just people think that it's just a bunch of numbers and names. But I think going back and looking at where we've been, it's almost like therapy uh, for the country. You have to understand where you've been to understand where you are now. And it was so eye opening to see these same themes being repeated uh, back a hundred years ago. With you know, what is the woman's role? How important is family? And and, and the subtle, and sometimes not so subtle racism. I mean, it was it was very disturbing mm-hmm. to read uh, newspapers in which you know they'd, they'd make jokes about women drivers or you know Afro- freed freed slaves and how lazy they were. And it was just it was kind of sickening. And I just oh gosh, you know it was <laughs> it was kind of people. You know, I'd read the newspapers today and they'd say times have never been worse, and I would actually disagree with that. I I do think you know we. we are in their times. Do sometimes we have these throwbacks? But we we have made incredible progress from this period where just the the casual sexism and the gleeful racism of that period, hmm. um, you know, and especially in places like Virginia where tradition and and history were so important, and history was being rewritten, and and this was a period during which the Ku Klux Klan had a, a resurgence, and it was. Um, uh, uh, the whole history of the Civil War was being rewritten as the the lost cause, and you you have to look back and see what what really happened during these periods. And I believe, especially you know, prohibition, it's it's been kind of glossed over. I think that people don't really mm-hmm. understand the suffering that occurred as a result of it. I mean, in in parts of Virginia, particularly in the rural parts of Virginia, these moonshiners would have starved to death if they hadn't resorted to, to moonshining but again they were being shot at by revenueers and it's just it's kind of stunning for me to think that 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 there were actual you know gun battles going on over over making liquor
0: you know you've mentioned the role of religion we've talked about the nativism you've mentioned the racism this this is something i didn't expect your note says the peculiar alliance of religion, nativism, racism, and progressivism that led to prohibition is well-documented. Where does progressivism come in there? Because that is a, for me, that's kind of a misunderstanding of what that meant.
1: Well, how do you define progressivism? I mean, again, well-intended people, early 20th century, were... The eugenicists, I mean, this was very disturbing to me Mm. to find out, but I mean, Mm -hmm. the people going back into, up into the mountains, fighting ringworm, fighting the way that these, these country people were living, the poverty, the desperation, and they were the pioneers of birth control and eugenics. And it was hard for me to, to wrap my head around that at first, but uh, how do you, how do you cure poverty? You know, what, mm-hmm. what do you do? And part of it was you, you take the people away from their families. You, 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 um, inhibit their ability to reproduce because they can't take care of the children that they have. Um, and this is, this is where eugenics had a big foothold and the, a lot of the research being done during this period directly led into, um, Nazism. And you just have to be wow. very careful. And I'm not, I'm not condemning or praising. I'm not saying what is right or wrong. Some of these people were very well intended, but Mm -hmm. the degree to which you reach into other people's cultures and say, I am going to show you the way you should be living. Um, it's a very dangerous thing. And I think that you're certainly social workers today have, they've rethunk things to a great degree where they try to work with the families more, but you know, um, people walking into to other people's lives and saying, three generations of imbeciles is enough. This family has to mm-hmm. get um, sterilized. And it, it was being looked at as a science. uh Organizations such as the Rockefellers were, were were funding this to say, this is yeah. the way we must end poverty. These are bad genes in this family. Uh, these are bad genes in this entire community. And we as well-educated men of science should intervene and stop this. And this was very much connected with the whole sort of mi- mindset of um, prohibition. We should make this world a better, cleaner place for the children, for the families.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Jeanette Walls. She's the author of The Glass Castle and Silver Star. And we're talking about her new novel, Hang the Moon, and you hear our conversation delving into the era of prohibition. Jeanette did a lot of research uh, into the era of prohibition, how, as she says, uh, the counties were going dry, states were imposing laws about this before it became a federal law, and what happened as a result of that, depending on where you lived in the country. Hey, one, one question that, that occurred to me as I was reading the novel that as you were writing, um, you know, you were seeing this incredible change. Going on with drug laws across this yeah. country and different states taking yeah. different leads, and I think a reassessment of our own moral opinion about what it means to use drugs or what it or who those people are or how we should regulate that and 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 how the criminal justice system should apply to that. I just wondered if you had some thoughts about that.
1: You know, I have many thoughts on it, but I have don't no, I have no answers, but <laughs> going through the 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 uh, just the foibles of, of, of prohibition, the what it tried to do and what it failed miserably to do, I just I couldn't help but notice the parallels with the drug laws. I mean, the just the terrible crime going on in the in the countries where where we get a lot of these drugs or the border areas. I mean, personally speaking i'm approved okay I, I don't drink I, mm. <laughs> I don't use any drugs but but you cannot deny that uh, in a lot of i mean in my uh, in the last 20 years uh, the number of states that have started legalizing marijuana st- you know i'm 63 years old in my childhood that was unthinkable that that would have happened you know mm-hmm. that was a bad drug yeah. we don't use that and watching these states one by one saying okay medicinal use okay recreational use and the world hasn't collapsed i i think we're very much in that that same dialogue that was going on a hundred years ago what is, what are the pros and what are the cons i mean certainly you can make strong arguments but uh, against legalizing drugs but now that it's being done in certain states and, and those states seem to be surviving i think people are rethinking that and that's one of the reasons i think it's so important to look back at our own personal history with issues like prohibition you know i i um other countries where drugs are, have been made more legal, it, again, it's hard to argue for legal drugs. However, when you see the consequences of illegal drugs, just the deaths and the, the, uh, the overdoses and the, the, the criminals getting rich and the, the, the people dying in drug shootouts, it's, it's, it is very much reminiscent of what was happening during Prohibition.
0: You put a quote uh, at the front of the book from your father and it says, (laughs) quality, hell, the only time our whiskey aged was when we got a flat tire. So he was a bootlegger?
1: Yeah, my dad ran Moonshine, he did. Um, <laughs> did he?
0: he you know. <laughs> I mean, did he talk about that, or how much did you know about it?
1: I, I just knew a little bit about it, and I didn't quite understand it, because the point is, you know, by the time Dad was running it, it was it was technically legal, uh, but of course it was uh. unbonded, meaning it wasn't being taxed. So there was a tradition in, in these areas, even after Prohibition had been lifted, to continue running Moonshine. But yeah, you know, and one of the things that I really tried to deal with with in hang the moon is just these local laws or the perceived laws or the way we do things versus the way the feds tell us to do things i mean it's just uh, you know how we pick and choose what we think is right and wrong um especially at times that we feel that the government is wrong when we feel it's okay to break those rules it you know i i grew up um as many people digital well sundays are are blue you can't get you can't get Liquor on, you can't go buy booze on Sundays. You gotta go way up into that bad neighborhood and pay a little bit extra. And, you know, and that's something that in many communities still exists today. And there are still dry counties where, oh, you gotta go to the neighboring county. So it's, it's just, it's one of those things with squishy laws, which, which do you choose to obey and which do you choose to ignore?
0: You know, um, which, which really leads me to something that I thought a lot about through the novel, which is you are wrestling with in some ways commenting on thinking about power, right? Yeah. Who has yeah. it, yeah. how they use it, who has to succumb to it. And, and this is what I thought made Sally Kincaid, your central character, so interesting. I mean, she, she's the daughter of the big, powerful boss man, Duke Kincaid, in the county, and he wields incredible power. I mean, he can, well, we can talk about this in a minute, the marriage that he requires. Um, but <laughs> but is he a compilation of people, I don't know, that maybe you you encountered in your journalism career, people who turned up in the research, people you knew, i mean how how did he come together as a character the
1: The answer to that is yes yes it is he is inspired by a whole okay. uh, yes yes um you know, I used to go around telling everybody that I'm a journalist. I don't make things up. I'm incapable of, of, of creating things. I have no imagination. And I've come to realize that the kind of fiction that I'm drawn to is very close to nonfiction. And that a lot of fiction writers don't technically make things up. We just, we have this radar for, oh, that's an interesting character. That's an interesting incident. Let's, let's pull from that. That's, you know, somebody who you know, somebody you've read about. So, um, you know, I think a lot of us know of a Duke Kincaid type of a person. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I hope it's not a stereotype. I don't think that truth is stranger than fiction. I think it's more nuanced and that there are always contradictions that when you look at the whole, they are actually not contradictions. It it makes sense once you look at the whole. So, you know, the Duke is... He is the quintessential uh, big daddy, uh, but I hope that I got a little bit deeper that, you know, he has his own demons as well. But yeah, he is he's somebody who you see often in in, uh, these, not just small towns. I think, you know, sometimes they run countries, Uh, these people who promise you security. I will take care of you if you hand over your sense of free will. If you let me make Mm -hmm. the decisions, I will protect you. And it's something that um, a lot of people find irresistible. They find comforting having somebody telling them what to do and what to think.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this is, again, why I think what Sally is seeing of the way power is wielded. And then I think it's fair to say that as she uh, comes into her own, she... She understands what the the dark side, I guess, of wielding that power, and how negative that can be for the people that you're trying to right yeah. that you're trying to um, yeah. support. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, yeah, you know, God bless you, because that's that's kind of the core of the book. It's just this sort of this idealization of this this grand man, and then realizing sometimes these these people and these forces that we think that are so good and that protect us, that there's a a really negative underside to it and that we have to question um, the people and the ideas that we hold dear. We must always question and challenge what we think we know and be willing to discard um, ideas that that no longer make sense to us. And uh, these idols, when their feet turn to clay, understand, you know, Nobody should be above the law. Nobody should be held as perfect, and and should be followed blind. I think that that's just very important, and that that's that in a nutshell is Sally's journey. So thank you for seeing that.
0: Hmm. It, there's a scene where a fight between two men has resulted in the death of one of the men, and Duke, in his own brand of justice, decides that the perpetrator should marry the widow. Of the man that he killed, and and Sally witnesses this. What do you think it means to the way she then holds her own power and makes the decisions as she comes of age?
1: Yeah, well, she not only witnesses it; she participates in it. And um, yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah,
1: yeah, and 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 it's it's a real. Um, It's a breach of, it's, she's putting on blinders and she doesn't want to see what's really happening. She's so caught up, not only in idealizing her father, but in wanting to be part of this family and this community and this power structure. And so she goes along with this and some other decisions that are morally questionable. And as she comes as she gets a little bit older and and starts to understand the world and her father a little bit better and starts to challenge these values then then yeah she has to sort of question whether or not making these decisions for other people is in fact the right thing to do so so it is it's kind of a coming of age for sally and one of the reasons that i wanted to place it during prohibition is i think that as sally is trying to figure out who she is and what kind of person she is she lives in this country that is trying to figure out who it is and what Mm -hmm. kind of country is going to be what is right and wrong because it was such it was such a pivotal time for america and it's a pivotal time for our lead character sally where she's Trying to figure right from wrong, good from bad and and whether or not the law is always right,
0: yeah, one of the ways that she gains this this more i guess clear eyed perspective on the father that she idolized is she he has had to send her away well, he doesn 't have to, but he decides to send her away, and when she returns, she has you know she 's had some distance and she sees yeah. him. With more clarity. But what I appreciated is she also gradually sees his vulnerabilities. And I guess I wonder how comfortable you think she is with that.
1: What a great question. Um, you know, she just, she's initially very uncomfortable with it, but she had to adjust her thinking, as so many of us do when we realize that our parents are flawed when we realize that our parents are just human beings and have their own baggage as well. And I've, I've heard it been said that we we become adults not when we are of age to vote or even when we have children. It's when we accept our parents as flawed human beings.
0: Absolutely. I have mentioned that you, uh, several times that you're the author of The Glass Castle, and I think everybody who's listening will remember that, that <laughs> memoir. So at what... I mean, given the tumultuousness of your own childhood and your experience with your parents, at what age would you say you really began to not just see the flaws but also understand what that meant for your relationship with them?
1: I think I knew it way before I admitted it to myself. I think that very often we, um, Mm. you know, that we hold on to family mythologies as long as we can mythology it 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 serves a purpose it a goal a a, you know protection an ideal but at a certain point some of us decide to let go of that mythology and you know I I realized kind of early on that we were very different from other kids that um other people pointed at us and whispered, and I didn't think it was out of admiration, but I, it, it was really when I was 13 years old, and I was the only person in the family earning any money, and my dad still paddled me, and I was like, hmm, you know something, this doesn't add up. Um, and I just, <laughs> I made the decision then to get out. I've just this, as I love my father, I believe he loved me, but the man was damaged, and he was not only not going to protect me, he was going to put me in harm's way, and I had to get out. So I, I realized kind of earlier on, way earlier on, that he was damaged, but I thought I could save him. I thought that he was going to mm-hmm. turn around and and um, fulfill the the potential I believed he had. And I just came to realize, I if he's going to do this, I I can't be the person responsible for it. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but it's not
0: up to me. You know, that, that, that's a, that must be a heartbreaking realization, and I know other... Other children go through that on different levels, right? Yeah. You suddenly, yeah. maybe a yeah. parent has an illness yeah. and, the, yeah. and the roles are reversed or, or a parent goes to prison yeah. and you, you suddenly see how vulnerable they are and how vulnerable they've left you.
1: Well, I think it's heartbreaking at the same time, at least for me, it was one of the best things that could have happened to me. It was the kick in the behind I needed to realize, get out of the situation, um, I think that that realization that your parents are imperfect and flawed, or or have their, it 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 is, it's the definition of growing up. I mean, it's it's the yearling all over when you realize, you know, I, it pushes you out of childhood or adolescence or whatever, and and you you just grow up and you deal with it and move on. And if you can't if you can't deal with that realization, you're in trouble. So it can be the worst thing that happened to you and the best thing.
0: You make it sound so well. You you box it all up and you put it. <laughs> and you did that for a long time, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of girl I am. <laughs> you
1: know, you just. And, you know, you just. It, you you have to realize that. At least I felt that I had to realize that um, this was beyond my power to change. Um, you know, and that was one of the interesting things in in writing Hang the Moon is is. I, I think that that ideology of 100 years ago was a lot more similar to mine than, than a lot of people. You know, you just – the interiority hmm. sometimes was hard with Sally because she can't sound like she just came from therapy. She can't sound like she just came from – you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how – you know, the, the amount of introspection and the, the, the language for the introspection had to be very different.
0: You know, it's so interesting to hear you say that, though, as somebody who boxed it up and then poured it all out in an incredible memoir, to then hear you talk about writing a character who who is not going to have that outlet, and yet she has to, I mean, she has to grow, and we, the reader, know she has to gain a certain sense of understanding, and we're kind of waiting for that, right? Right. Right. Do, right. You, do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely, and it's something that I, I I grappled with in the writing of it. Is is how does this woman who who is not going to um, talk about her feelings in a way that 21st century people do. How does she come to terms with all of this? And some of it is kind of just boxing it up and moving on and just getting it done and accepting. And, um, you know, I I was very careful about the language I used. Um, I think that I became a little bit nutty with the research. So, you know, Originally, <laughs> Sally was a little bit of a potty mouth and I came to realize that all of her curse words were mid-century. <laughs> so I just, I not only had to clean it up, I had to make it more, more accurate. But um, I, I tried very hard to make her thinking uh, early 20th century. And, and th- that was a challenge. I think that a lot of historical novels, and I'm not knocking anybody, but I think that the thinking is a lot more contemporary. And I tried very, mm. I, I did my best to make it feel old-fashioned yet relatable. I didn't want it to feel archaic as something that people wouldn't be able to relate to, but I had to be very careful about about kind of walking that fine line.
0: Okay, well, give me a sense of where you go for the, not for the facts, but the sensibility of it in research. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where do you turn for that?
1: Um, Well, thank you for realizing that that was a challenge because that was probably the biggest challenge. I read so many letters and diaries from that period, trying to get the language right, trying to get the sensibility right. Um, Most of the literature from that period is written from an urban perspective or at least Mm -hmm. somebody who was a teacher or something like that. And it was really hard to find sources that were as rural as, as Sally would have been. Um, one of my best resources for finding just the language is I, I use newspapers dot com a lot when I wanted to find out. Well, this this phrase would it have been in use back then in this area? So I'd I'd, I'd search through the local newspapers from um, from that period to make sure that 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 word was in. But um, just it, it was mostly the, like I said the diaries, um, letters to the editor, letters to neighbors that I. I kind of mind that that mindset and the language and the sensibility.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, it, let me remind listeners uh, what we're doing here. I'm Carrie Miller and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas and I'm in conversation with Jeanette Walls about her new novel, Hang the Moon. It's set in rural Virginia during Prohibition. We've talked a lot about that era of of American history and Jeanette's research into that. But you've also just heard us saying she was not only looking for the facts, but she was trying to understand the way people spoke to each other and their own interior thinking, their kind of self-talk in in the area, and some of the big larger-than-life characters um, that she's put on the page and that emerged in some ways in her research as well. Um, I think you're also plumbing the nature of mothers and daughters yeah. in this yeah. novel, because, <laughs> yeah, um, Sally yeah. is grieving over the loss of her own mother, mm-hmm. the role of the women that her father marries and brings home, and then, and then we get this startling decision by one of those women that her, her father has brought home to give up her own daughter. So what were you exploring? What kind of questions were you asking?
1: Well, um, again, thank you for seeing that. That is probably the theme through the book is just this sort of, what is the role of a woman, a motherhood? Sally's idealization of her father is largely because she she didn't have uh, a mother growing up, and she didn't have a whole lot of what we would call women role models. And what what was a woman's role at that period. Here's a young woman who was a tomboy growing up and she wanted to be just like her dad. Um, but her dad didn't want her to be just like him. He wanted grandchildren. What What does a woman do back then? You know, motherhood was held in such high esteem back then, the head of the family. What, what were a woman's choices? And, um, you know, the importance of having a husband just the amount of literature that was devoted to to being a mother being a wife that that was and again many of these women many of these women 's organizations that 's what it was about is is the importance of motherhood, the importance of family, and how does somebody who is not drawn to motherhood how do they deal with that how does somebody who has a child out of wedlock, which certainly happened a lot. How do you, how do you fit into this very narrow definition of what a woman should be?
0: I mean, don't you think, Jeanette, it's still taboo to talk openly about how you're not drawn to motherhood? Even if you have, even (laughs) if you don't have children or you do have children, do you hear many women really being open about that?
1: Oh, no, no. I mean, it still is considered, as far as we've come, it is still, oh, that is the role in, in many people's mind. That is the ultimate role for women. And I'm not knocking that. If people, if that's what they embrace, God bless them, let them, you know, whatever. But but yes, you're absolutely right. There are many accomplished women who decided not to have children and they say that people pull them aside and to say that, it's a shame you never had children. You will never truly understand what it means to be a woman. So, yeah, I think that it's something, it's still taboo. Absolutely.
0: I've asked if you'll read a scene um, where Kat, and this is Duke's third wife, has had a child. And she decides, as you've noted, that she isn't ready to be a mother. And it's a, it's a really, it's tender. And it's revealing, and it shows us some some facets of these characters that I think we've hinted at, but now we're really starting to understand. What else would you say about the scene?
1: I think that, you, you know, Carrie, I've, I've avoided <laughs> reading from this book because I, there's so many spoilers, but you've chosen a really good passage where it's just, this is Sally at her most vulnerable. This is the, just the sort of... Sally's um, soul here which the, the scene in which she kind of reveals who she is so, um, and, and who she pretends not to be so yeah let's go for it
0: <laughs> okay
1: my mind's made up Kat says to just leave your daughter you can't do that don't tell me what I can and cannot do her voice is sharp but a pleading look comes into her tired eyes. Sally, I'm not like you. I've always needed a man, and I've always found one. But after what's happened here, no decent man in this county will ever marry me. I'm no spring chicken, but I've still got a lot of years ahead of me, and I have to move on. Take what's left of the money Maddie gave me and start afresh. You're a mama cat. Your baby needs you. I'm not cut out to be a mama. That's what my body's telling me. Can't even make milk. If I take the baby with me, I won't be able to get a job. And a woman with another man's baby, that's a tough sell if she's looking for a husband. But Grace is your little girl. I'm doing it for her good, too. She'll be better off raised by you and Fay and Mary. If I'm not around to m- remind everyone, people will forget that I was Grace's mama. She's your daughter. This time, it's my voice that's sharp. She needs her mama. Cat stands up. You grew up without your mama, and you turned out just fine. That's what you think, Cat. But I didn't turn out just fine. I could tell her that. I could tell her that I have only a few sketchy memories of Mama, that I've missed her something awful. So many times watching Jane fussing over Eddie, holding his hand as they walked out in the garden, tuck him in, tucking him into bed at night and kissing him first thing in the morning. And I wondered what it would be like to have a mom attending to me like that, letting me know I was wanted. I pretended it didn't matter, pretended all I needed was the duke, as long as I loved him, and he loved me back, I was fine. But I will never shake the feeling that I was unwanted. Any little girl whose mama disappears will always have a hole in her heart that nothing will ever completely fill. I've never told anyone that. Never seen it so clearly. And I could tell Kat now. But I know it won't work. I know that our mind is made up. That's why she was able to laugh when she first sat down. And I also know that even if I could could twist her arm and make her give up the idea of that new life she's dreaming about, she'd hold it against me and against Grace. I decide to say nothing. But I can't. I can't say nothing. I'd never forgive myself. So I tell her, Cat, I didn't turn out fine. Sally, this is what's best for everyone. Cat says, like she didn't even hear me. Cat, I miss my mama something awful. I miss her every single day. I'm leaving tonight. No need for a lot of goodbyes. In the morning, when everyone wakes up, I'll be gone.
0: Jeanette Walls reading from her novel, Hang the Moon. Okay, I have to, it's, by the way, it's really fun to hear you read that scene, <laughs> so I think some of your other audiences have missed out that you haven't been reading, but I have to say, I I felt so much more ambivalent about Kat's decision than I wanted to. There's a lot of self-knowledge there, and that is, that's bold, and it's and it's valuable, and yet... She's making a decision yeah. that again, you know, we talked about this seems really taboo.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of logic behind it. And I know of people from her generation who made the same decision and, um, people Did just kind of huh. bucked. Up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was the kind of research <laughs> that I really dug into people in the teens and twenties who lost a husband and, decided to just move to another town get a new husband let the family be raised by the grandparents and um wow. you know i i don't i can't say whether it was the right or wrong decision but it was a common decision back then
0: hm so um i'm i'm curious about whether you knew it was i, I haven't really asked you much about how how you write because there's been so many other interesting things to talk about, but did you know that the story was headed to that, given the research, given the complexity of of the female characters that you were drawing?
1: No, no. No, I'm a fast but sloppy writer, and I just get it down, and I just, I write it. I've never had writer's block, and I just, I write, and then I look at it and say, does this feel true? Does it feel right? No, it doesn't. Why? or why not. What am I trying mm-hmm. to do? What am I trying to say here? Is is this character behaving true to themselves? What what is this character doing and why? So I just would push it and say, huh, this this isn't the way this person would behave. Let me do some research of people in a similar situation and and find someone in a, it, it, who faced this kind of dilemma." What did this person decide, and why? And will that will that will the pieces fit, or just just chew on it every morning and every night? And w- what makes sense for this character? So a lot of people surprised me.
0: Hmm. It's interesting to hear you say you've never had writer's block, not with the memoir, <laughs> not with the historical <laughs> fiction. <laughs> Do you feel no, like you had to knock on I wood just a write. little bit? <laughs>
1: Maybe it's my background in journalism. No, no, I just yeah. Yeah, is it the journalism, uh, do you think? Yeah, yeah, it is. And and I think that for me, the process of writing is the process of thinking. And I'll just be, you know, writing along like... This this is this is terrible, <laughs> and I'm just writing, mm. writing. This isn't working, huh? Why? And then I just go back and read it. <laughs> okay, that's why. Sometimes when I'm writing something, I think it's genius, and I read it back, and it's just awful. You got to throw it out. But, but I look at it, and, and y- uh, m- my husband has a, a, a good saying. He's one of the challenges of writing is that you have to believe in it and be critical of it at the same time. And so yeah. you know, you believe in the in the overall story that you're going to get there, but you have to be very willing to admit this is just awful. this is just terrible and I find that when when my writing is failing me it's because I'm not going deep enough it's because I'm being glib or I'm resorting to stereotypes or I'm not you know I'm I'm just writing off the top of my head you have to ask yourself why why does this this isn't is this true and I'm, I'm not saying I always get there but that's my goal is to try to get deep enough that it makes sense and complex enough. You know, people are such Mm -hmm. contradictions. And I love, love, love what you said about your ambivalence about her decision. Because the world isn't black and white. And, you know, uh, Kat was not a bad person for leaving her daughter, but she wasn't a good person either. Everything is so complicated. And the challenge for us writers and for us as human beings is to, Understand the way that dark and light are so often intertwined and sometimes indistinguishable
0: So were you writing this novel in twenty twenty one the year that your own mom died?
1: Yes, yes, I was um you were yeah. Yeah, she couldn't understand why I kept on rewriting it. <laughs> you know, and I worked on this book for a long time. And she's like, are you still rewriting that thing? But yeah, Mom mom passed away. Um, I have to say, it. She as 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 much as you can have a good death, she did. She was joyful right up until the end. We put her in the ATV. We strapped her in with bungee cords. She, she wouldn't fall out. We just drove her around. And, and she'd say, stop, stop. <laughs> Look at the color of that flower. It's so beautiful. Um, and you know, mom, mom found a lot of joy in life, more than I think most people do. And that's not a bad legacy.
0: Do you think she shared that?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a lot like my mother. We're very different. She always said I was like her mother. Um, but, um, you know, I might be. I have very complicated parents, but I think that they give gave me great gifts, and um, joy and um, sense of self esteem. And you know, I'd I'd always, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, I'd 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 avoided writing what I thought was pure fiction, even though a couple two of my previous books were labeled fiction. I think this is the first truly fictional book I wrote because I felt mm-hmm. that I. I couldn't make things up that I had no imagination. I was at a reading one time and a a gentleman in the audience said, ma'am, forgive me, but I think you have a fabulous imagination, but you're afraid of your own creativity. And he really, I think, hit on something because I associated creativity of making things up with, um, with lying and insanity, both of which run in my family. And um, I think that my parents Actually, they gave me the great gift of creativity as well, but it it took me a really long time to unwrap that gift.
0: I mean, do you think in some ways, Jeanette, you thought there was something lesser than about writing pure fiction?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did. <laughs> I did, but I've come to realize that I think that... The best fiction is very close to nonfiction, and the best Absolutely. nonfiction is close to fiction, and that they borrow heavily from each other. And that if you can get the truth of nonfiction and fiction, and the um, the vividness and and the feel and taste and sound of every of nonfiction and in, I'm sorry, fiction and nonfiction, then. The, the line is a lot blurrier than I used to realize. Uh, you know, of course, you don't make things up. But you can do things in fiction that you can't do in nonfiction. And the the opposite is not true.
0: I, I thought we could close with um, a song from the soundtrack of The Glass Castle. Oh. And it's called <laughs> Summer Storm um, by Joel you. West. Yes.
1: They burn down. side black.
0: Jeanette, thank you so much. You're fabulous. What a pleasure. Oh my
1: gosh, you're amazing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Not only is your voice amazing, your brains amazing. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love the conversation. Really looked forward to it. Jeanette, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it.